If you would this morning, I want you to put your ribbon in Romans chapter 8. Put your marker there in Romans chapter 8. And then we're going to go to our text in the book of Colossians. I believe it's going to be very helpful to see a companion thought in the book of Romans based on what we're going to see today in Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Just while, by way of review while you turn there, you'll remember Colossians was one of the prison epistles that Paul wrote uh, in response to his friend Epaphras who had founded the church at Colossae. And Epaphras was concerned because the city of Colossae was full of so much heresy that even though the church was in great shape, he was worried that the culture was going to invade the church. And so we can tell by Paul's response that two main heresies that he dealt with was Judaistic legalism where they were taught to keep the law for salvation and also a form of mysticism where God speaks through this hidden mystical uh, knowledge or visions or dreams, but it goes against and contrary to and outside the revelation that He's given us in the Word of God. As I always say, we, we see that everywhere today. All the cults started that way. And we've already seen in this chapter, and we should finish out chapter 1 today, but Paul begins by reminding the Colossian believers of their foundation in the gospel. Uh, we've also seen how he prayed for these Colossian believers, that the Lord would make them fruitful and strong and that they would be full of the knowledge of God's will. And I believe that uh, both in that text and the, especially the one we're going to read this morning, we see Paul's pastoral heart coming through. And Paul has reminded them of who Christ is. He's the everlasting God, the creator of all things. He's also the head of the church, his bride. And last week we saw where Paul reminded them of the great reconciling work of Christ and how He brought them unto saving faith and how He made them right with God through His sacrifice. And in our text today, we're going to be looking at the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. With that in mind, let's read our text in Colossians. We'll begin there in verse 24 of chapter 1. It says, "...who now rejoice..." Paul is talking about himself (coughs) based on the previous verses. He says, "...who's now rejoice in my suffering for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to His saints." to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. And Lord, we just come to You in Jesus' name. We lift up all those that are out sick, uh, those that are traveling, be with Pastor Stonehouse and Mary Jean as he's on the road filling in at Berean. I pray that you bless him this morning. Uh, Lord, lift up Andy and his family uh, and what they're going through. and uh, Lord, how they'll be traveling and sorting through this next chapter of life. And I just pray you would just comfort them and be with them in a mighty way. 
Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Just empty me of sin and self because apart from you, I, can, I am nothing and I can do nothing. And I just pray that Christ would be magnified. And Lord, we, we would just know him better before we leave today. Save the lost, encourage the hurting, and we give these things to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're looking at the thought of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And up to this point in the text, uh, Paul has been reminding them of their present position in Christ. But in this text, when we get to chapter 2, he's really going to focus in on the false teaching that was being uh, put out in the city of Colossians. And, you know, that's a, that is a great thing to do. And I think even from the pulpit, I think there's some things that we ought to call out and expose. But before he even gets there, he's reminding them of uh, their foundation, the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. And in this text, he's talking about their future hope in glory that's brought about by the fact that Christ is dwelling in them now. And so I think before we always get on the negative, we ought to be reminded of the positive, of the truth of those things. Christ ought to be our focus. And <clears throat> uh, when we talk about the word hope, the word hope means an expectation of good, uh, an expectation of good things in the future. And the Christian hope is not... Uh, a hope of chance. You know, often people use that phrase hope, like, well, I, I hope my team wins, or I hope I get a promotion, or I hope it's, it's wishful thinking. They hope that happens. But that is not true of the Christian hope. The Christian hope is based on certainty. And our hope is that one day we will spend eternity with Jesus Christ in a new body that never knows suffering again. That sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it to you? That's going to happen. It's for certain. We have God's Word on that. We can trust the promises of God on that. But what exactly, and this is what I want to wrestle with today, what exactly is Paul expressing about this hope of glory for the Christian? We're going to break some things down here. And the first thing that I want you to see is the manifestation of hope. Look at verse 24. It says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings. We ought to all underline that right there who rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, why is that? To fulfill the Word of God. Now we've got to remember, because we would never know it by the way that Paul writes here, but we've got to remember that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, waiting on his execution, which he was eventually beheaded by Nero. And so this is his current state. This is the rejoicing, uh, this is the suffering that he is rejoicing in. And in these verses, he makes an amazing statement. This really helped me when I, when I read this. But he essentially says that he is glad that he is suffering because it will add weight to what he is about to say about hope. That's an amazing statement. Lord, I'm glad that I'm suffering right now because when I tell these Colossian believers about the hope that I have and the rejoicing that I have, there's no way they can mistake it 
for the good circumstances that I'm in right now. They're going to know that it's real, and they're going to know that the hope that I have is otherworldly. It's outside of my circumstances. That is the rejoicing and the hope that I have. Now, he is thankful for... He makes another incredible statement. He is thankful for the suffering in his body as Christ suffered in his body so that he might encourage the body of Christ, which is the church. Now, this is so important. And I wrestled with this for a long time, even as a young Christian, just because of what I heard and what I was around. But in our society, we tend to think that the only way that God can get the glory is by delivering us from all of our troubles in this life. You ever heard that? You ever thought that way? Well, I just know, God, if I just pray hard enough, you know, God is going to deliver me from all of my problems, and then He'll get the glory for it. We like to think that way, don't we? Sometimes He does. And sometimes He absolutely does, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't even believe there's anything wrong with asking God to deliver us. But here's the thing. Sometimes He gives us the grace to deliver us from our circumstances, and sometimes He gives us the grace to endure our circumstances with joy. And both of those things bring glory to God. You can't tell me that when the Apostle Paul was locked up in that prison and the only thing he was waiting for was Nero to call his name. Listen, Nero was so wicked. He hated Christians so much that he would behead them. Now, I'm not trying to get too graphic here. But Nero would cut off the heads of Christians he would pry out their brain cavity, hollow out their skull, stick their skull on the top of a long pole, fill it with tar, and light it on fire, and use their heads as torches to light the roadways in the kingdom. That's what he thought of Christians. And that's who essentially, and now we know that uh, Paul's life was in God's hands, but in a practical human sense, his life was in Nero's hands. That's who he was waiting on to call his name. And yet you can't tell me in that situation with the kind of joy and resolve he had, it didn't make an impact on those Roman soldiers. I tell you, those Roman soldiers were probably so sick of hearing about Jesus Christ. I mean, being chained to the Apostle Paul. Don't you know they probably begged to have another duty somewhere? (laughs) But I guarantee you, some of them came to Christ through that. You can go write that down. And so, but, but if Paul, listen, if he had been living the life of Riley, if he was in a palace, if he had golden spoons and a soft bed and all these things, well, that that doesn't really speak too much to the joy that we have in Christ, does it? It actually masks it. Because, listen, there's plenty of lost people that have those things. There's plenty of lost wealthy people. There's plenty of lost healthy people. In fact, really, when you think about it, what makes us different from the world? I mean, even if we had all kinds of health and wealth and prosperity. We can just look across the street at our neighbor who doesn't know Christ, who has all the same things. What makes the difference? It's the fact that our joy is not determined and contingent upon those things. That we can have joy in spite of those things. And Paul was so glad that in his sufferings, he could add weight to what he was saying about his real hope. (coughs) Now, um, as Christians... We don't have to lose heart because of the struggles of this life because our hope isn't in this life. Now, I'm fixing to say something, y'all going to think I'm crazy, but you probably already think I'm crazy anyway, so that's okay. As I mentioned, I don't think God is upset with us if we ask for deliverance, but based on what I'm seeing from Paul, sometimes we probably ought to pray for suffering in our lives. 
that Christ might be made real to the ones that we love. You know, we often pray on Wednesday night and we have a list of people that we pray for that we want to see saved. That's wonderful. But what if by praying for your loved ones to be saved, what you're actually praying for is your own suffering? That instead of just words coming out of your mouth, they could see what you have is real by the suffering that is breaking you. Wow, what a thought. If we knew that's what our fate would be, would we still pray as hard for it? That's essentially what Paul is saying here. And I find it interesting. I I did not, like I said, y'all, I learn something every time I open this book. But one thing that I saw that I've never really paid attention to is the fact that the only time that you see Paul asking for any kind of deliverance is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when God gives him some type of thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but there was definitely a physical aspect to it. There was a spiritual aspect to it because he called it the, uh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. And we see that Paul begged God three times to take it from him. And God essentially said no, but he gave him sufficient grace. And that grace was so powerful and so strong in Paul's life that even in the same chapter he said, I would much rather glory in my sufferings that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And it was after that point that Paul saw the greatest days of ministry in his life. Not in the absence of the thorn, but in the presence and through that thorn, whatever it was. And what, what was really interesting to me is uh, that statement in 2 Corinthians was written uh, at least four years prior to the prison epistles. And what you read in the prison epistles, he never asked for deliverance from that. And so whatever happened to him in 2 Corinthians 12, it's almost like we see a maturing of Paul. And he recognizes the benefits and the power and the grace that's found in our suffering, and he never asked for deliverance again. And sometimes I think that we're so consumed with being delivered that we will not even entertain the idea that God wants to use our suffering for His glory. He wants to make our testimony more powerful. And we reject that. We we would never accept that. But we see what happened in Paul's life when he did. You see, there was a time where Paul didn't accept it because he kept asking over and over and over, God, deliver me. And when he found out that it wasn't God's will to deliver him, but that through that thorn he was going to allow the power of Christ to rest upon him, we never see Paul ask for deliverance again. I think there's a lot to be said there. But how many times, honestly, I'm not going to tell you how many times I've asked for it. How many times have you asked, Lord, if it takes me suffering for my lost loved ones to be saved, would you bring it? Would you give it to me? Would you insert suffering into my heart and life so that others might be saved through that? Do we ever pray for those things? Paul said he was glad for it. Paul was thrilled at this power that rested upon him. Now we see him praising God for that suffering. And the hope and joy of a Christian is most clearly seen in the contrast to suffering in bad circumstances. And I think about it like this. This is a great illustration of what I'm saying. If you think about the parable that Jesus told about um, the foolish man that built his house upon the sand and the wise man that built his house upon the rock. Now before the floods came, before the storms came... If you were to walk through that neighborhood and you could have seen the 
wise man's house and the foolish man's house, you would have thought there was no difference between the two, right? Well, they're both houses. Yeah, they'll, they'll keep the, the rain off of your head. And yeah, they're the same. There's no difference because you couldn't see the foundation that they were built upon until the storms came. The storm was what revealed their foundation. And in life, when everything is going good, when the, when the money's good and the relationships are good and the health is good and everything is good, the, the LDS, they can't see any difference between us and them because they've got those things. It's only when the storms come and the suffering comes that our foundation is really revealed. And so knowing that, why would we not pray for those things? I mean, really... I've said this before and I'll say it again. We pr- another thing we pray for regularly at this church, and I'm grateful for it, we pray for revival. We pray that God would pull the blinders of false religion off of this valley and off of our nation. But when I read history and I read the Scriptures, that never happened by osmosis. There was always a purging. There was always a, a storm. There was always great suffering that revealed the difference between God's children and their gospel and their hope and all this false stuff that was nothing but smoke and mirrors. I believe, this, I believe that's what it's going to take in this country for people to ever seriously seek the truth. And by the way, we're living in a day where that very well might happen sooner rather than later. And we're going to find out what we're all made of and what we're actually building upon. And only by God's grace could we ever make it through something like that. And so we think about those things seen in darkness. You know, if you were to walk outside right now, I know it's cloudy, but let's just say that it was a clear, sunny day. If you were to look up in the sky, you couldn't see any stars right now. But the stars just didn't disappear. They're still there right now. But you can't see it because of all the light pollution that comes from the sun. But when the sun goes down, you can see the stars clear as day, can't you? Because the stars can only be seen in the dark. How true is that of the suffering in the life of a Christian? You don't have to be ashamed for asking God to deliver you, but don't forget to ask God to reveal and glorify Christ in your suffering so that people may see the manifestation of hope within you. Second thing I want to look at this morning, not only the manifestation of hope, but also the mystery of hope. Look at verse 26. It says, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest or made clear to his saints is what that means. It says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. <clears throat> now, I want you to know what a mystery in Scripture is. There are actually quite a few mysteries. In fact, it would be a great study in your own time, to go look up all the different mysteries in the New Testament. But we, we need to get this definition right because there's been a lot of charismatics and a lot of mystics that have taken this to a place the context doesn't take it to. But a, a mystery in Scripture, all it is, is a previously hidden or obscure truth that God has later revealed to His people and clarified in Scripture. There's no such thing as a is a mystery that's outside the pages of Scripture. If a mystery has been revealed, 
It's been revealed in Scripture through the Holy Spirit of God. And so we need to understand that. But to give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about, the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. We have the Scriptures that clarify that. We know what it is. But in the Old Testament, they didn't really understand it. They had a vague concept, but they did not understand it. Like, for example, when Isaiah wrote the prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, Behold, I give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Uh, you should call his name Emmanuel, uh, which being interpreted as God with us. Now, Isaiah wrote that by the inspiration of God, but I can promise you he didn't really understand it, which actually even proves further uh, the miracle of inspiration. He wrote about things that came true that he didn't even understand when he was writing them. In fact, nobody really understood that. Nobody had a clue what it meant until the gospel writers came along and clarified what he meant. In fact, um, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, when it talks about the birth of Christ, it literally says this is, the birth of Christ, is a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah and what he said. And it's, oh man, it all makes sense now. That was a mystery in which the meaning was hidden that was later revealed through the Scriptures. Uh, we, could, we could pick several examples. That's not my point today. I just wanted you to know what a mystery in Scripture is. And uh, <coughs> that, that uh, is an important distinction to make. Uh, I want you to know about, we talk about Christ in us, the indwelling Christ Understand that indwelling is through the Holy Spirit of God. Because if you think about it, Christ is seated right now at the right hand of the Father as our high priest and advocate, and He is working through His Holy Spirit in and through the world and in and through believers. And this is where... Keep your place in Colossians, because we're going to come back to close this out. But I wanted you to see uh, another very clear place in Scripture what this indwelling is. And we're talking about the mystery of the indwelling Christ. Look at Romans 8, beginning in chapter 9. It says, But you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, capital S. We know we're talking about the Holy Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, let me stop there and say that there's a lot of charismatics they would try to tell you about a second blessing that uh, you know the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. But in other words, you can be saved and yet not have the Holy Spirit. That has no scriptural backing at all. The truth is, the moment that a person is saved, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a saved person without the Holy Spirit, and there is no such thing as a person who has the Holy Spirit who's not saved. It says right here, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, He is none of His. Now, I've heard Creflo Dollar and others like him try to say that the Spirit of Christ is not the Holy Spirit. Well, who is it? <laughs> who is He? It says the Spirit of God. It says the Spirit of Christ. It says the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit is capitalized. Of course this is the Holy Spirit. Come on. Uh, but it says in verse 10, And if Christ be in you... No, no, this is what I want you to see. Notice how these phrases are used inter interchangeably, where it talks about Christ in you and the Spirit of Christ in you. Christ is in us through the presence of His Holy Spirit while He is seated 
at the right hand of the Father. This again proves the Trinity, and it again proves the fact that the Holy Spirit is God and not some mystical force. Um, <clears throat> verse 11, um, well, verse 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, there it is again, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. And so that's what I really wanted you to see, is this mystery of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. But another thing I kind of want you to think about as far as mysteries are, are concerned. You know, as Christians that have experienced the new birth, we see the Scriptures through the eye of faith, and it's just as real as the, the chair you're sitting in. It's as real as the ground that I'm standing on. And it's so real to us, in fact, that I think we tend to take it for granted. There's just, as Christians, there's just certain things that we accept by faith uh, that the world just seems to be really strange. I mean, have you ever really thought about how the world thinks about the concept of a virgin birth? Like, they look at us like we're insane. And in, in biological terms, it is insane. But we accept it by faith because we've got a God that's not bound to those things. Or even when it comes to the bodily resurrection, scientifically speaking, that's impossible. That's what makes it a miracle. And if anybody else was able to raise from the dead on their own power... The fact that Jesus rose from the dead wouldn't be any big deal. Oh, well, so-and-so did it. Big whoop, you know? And so we just accept these things. But what about the thought of Christ being in us? And especially when you think about the fact, and you can go back to the book of Colossians. (coughs) But think about the fact that earlier in the same chapter, Paul has just made Christ to be so big. He's the creator of all things. He's the eternal God. He's the beginning and the end. I mean, all of these things. And that Christ is dwelling in us through His Holy Spirit. And at the end of the chapter, not only do we see that, but it says that we're in Christ. Can you imagine the, con- the, the way the world looks at the concept of Jesus Christ being in us? Um, I have a preacher friend of mine who is a full-time evangelist. He travels around and preaches different places. And he told a story one time. Uh, he was actually preaching about Christ in us. And there was a, a girl that came up to him after the service who was about five or six years old and, you know, with the mind of a five-year-old asking these things. And she, she was just asking these somewhat strange questions. He's just trying to the best he can to answer them. And he said, uh, she said, you know, preacher, how, how big do you think Jesus is? Or how big do you think He was when He walked the earth? And he said, well, I, you know, I'm guessing maybe like an average height, maybe about six feet tall. And, and she said, wow, if he's that big and he's living in me, he should be sticking out somewhere, shouldn't he? Uh, there's a lot of practical application to that. And if he's living in us, he ought to be sticking out somewhere. But that's, not, that's, of course, not the way she meant it. But I thought, man, how the world must look at us when we say that Christ is living within us. It's a mystery to them. It's been revealed through, to us uh, in the new birth, but they don't get it. But um, the mystery here is our present hope of future glory with Christ. The world doesn't understand that because all their hope is wrapped up in this life. No wonder wealthy people even grow up to be old and bitter. They know their time is short. 
This word glory, we talk about hope, but the word glory means to shine or to be radiant, kind of like the, the moon reflects the glory or the light of the sun. <clears throat> um, it is the final and ultimate hope for a Christian <clears throat> that um, we would be with Him. And I lied to you and said we were done in Romans 8. You don't have to turn here, you can. I really want you to hear this if you don't see it. Uh, Romans 8, very familiar passage, but I want you to see this. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. That's the word we're dealing with and. Sometimes this passage is called the golden chain of redemption, and it really shows us in sequence from eternity past to eternity future what God does in order to save a person. And the last thing that we see here is that we will be glorified. That means getting our new body. That means being like Christ. That means spending all eternity with Him in completely unhindered fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3 and verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see Him with our eyes. You know, when He was on this earth, that was kind of impossible because He was veiled in flesh. And, uh, you know, when He kind of peeled it back a little bit at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John fell down like dead men. They couldn't even look at Him in His glory. But we'll be able to do that. Just like you're looking at me now, we would see Christ as He is. Well, let me ask you this. What is your ultimate hope in life? If it's anything but future glory with Christ, you're going to have to give it up one day. Everything you're working for that has no eternal value, you're going to have to give it up one day. But this is the mystery of our hope. Christ in you, the hope of future glory. But thirdly, and I'm done. <coughs> I'm coming in for a landing. I want you to know about the missing of hope. Back in Colossians chapter 1, as we close out, um, look at verse 28. It's talking about Christ. It says, Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, the word perfect does not mean sinless perfection. It means Christian maturity. And Paul is warning the lost that don't have this hope. But he's also warning Christians not to live as if they have no hope. He is reminding all of us that one day we will stand before Christ and we're going to stand before Him either as His bride or we're going to stand before Him as a criminal to be judged. And if your hope isn't anchored in Christ, then you have no ultimate hope. If you're not trusting in Christ for all eternity, what is your hope anyway? At the best, it's temporary and fleeting. My present possession of Christ ensures me of a future hope. 